so I am here with Misha Angrist, who is most recently the author of Here is a Human Being. Misha, here is Misha Angrist. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Ed, and it is a pleasure to be here with you and Sarah. Okay. I wanted to first of or all... Or should I call you Bat? You can call me Phyllis, you can call me Jerry, you can call me uh, an assassinated congresswoman. <laughs> nice to start off with You'll a classy note out, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to start off with something that was interesting to me. What's most curious about this book uh, is that it seems to be very much about mapping your own neuroses as much as your own genome. Um, you know, it's, it's almost as if your quest to understand the implications of the PGP has led you to understand the implications of your own particular attitude. For instance, you write that you and your wife had a rough patch. There's the point where you declare Luden Wainwright's therapy as your theme song, which was astonishing to me. Um, you have the uh, your attempt to interview James Watson, and you have this $83 paperback that you purchased, but you don't actually get the interview, which um, made me feel for you, I must say. Um, and, and the sly suggestion here, I think, is that self-reflection may very well be just as important as understanding the genome. So what of this? Was this Why did the strategy go into writing this book? Uh, well, I think to call it a strategy is very generous of you. Um, you know, I wanted it to be a first-person personal narrative. It was going to be about personal genomics. And... Um, you know, I started graduate school in 1988, and I finished my postdoc in 1998, and went on to cover the biotech industry and market research in a fairly miserable job. Um, and I should say that uh, Ed's rants and uh, confessions of an idiosyncratic mind were great friends to me during those years in the desert. Um, wow. <laughs> wow. I mean, you, you make us seem like we're palm trees or something. <laughs> You're a lot more interesting. Than a palm tree? Yes. Okay. Um, but, but we're talking but about you. But you gave me we're succor. We're talking about you and your yes. self-reflection. I, so, I, I only just met you now. I just want to be clear on this. Yes. Yeah. But it doesn't feel that way. Um, to me, anyway. Yeah. Um, you may want to pretend that you that we never met. Um, so then I got a job as a science editor, and I sort of continued to watch the field grow and change. And so I had many years of stuff that built up inside me that I felt I needed to say. Um, so I think that's one thing. Another thing is when I read George Church's article in Scientific American in 2006, uh, it was a real sort of light bulb moment, and I felt like here was a guy who was articulating things that I've felt for a long time, but didn't know I felt them. Um, and so that sort of brought me clarity. And then finally, uh, and I alluded to this a moment ago, um, so many science books that are intended for popular audiences are just awful. Yeah. Um, you know, so many trees have given their lives so that people with the best intentions um, wind up writing cheerleading, didactic, 
uh, anti-cheerleading. Um, polemical. Let's not mix that. You know. I'm sorry. Polemical books as well. Don't yes. That. Yeah. Right. Screeds. Yeah. Rants. Um, yeah. Yes. Uh, just, I mean, rants. Those are just shameful. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Expatiations. <laughs> so. Um, you know, I wanted a book that had real people in it. And, and looking in the mirror, you saw a real person. Well, I saw something. You saw someone who I was saw something sacrificing that, trees? I saw something that I knew something about. Yeah. Uh, and as uh, I was on a panel with Annie Murphy Paul, and she, someone asked her, um, you know, what, how did you make the decision to put yourself in your book? And she said, well, I happen to have access to my own thoughts and feelings. Yeah. Um, so. Not part, always mapped on a genome. I'm sorry? Not always mapped on a genome. That's though. right. Yeah. So That's you're right. kind of getting the stuff that you isn't mapped in, well, and mapping that. That's, that was my sort of suggestion with my question. Well, I think... Um, People who sort of glance at the book probably look at it as, I, I think a lot of people look at it or assume that it's this deterministic thing. And I wanted to be very clear that that's not where I was coming from. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, uh, I didn't, uh, I'm not interested in making the case that it's useless. Um, I simply wanted to sort of take a picture of where we are now and where we might be headed and what some of the contingencies are. I'm wondering to what degree having access to your genomic data altered your notions of privacy. I mean, there, this is a very confessional book. As yes. I said, um, that's kind of why I felt the need to give you a hug right before you sat down, because I, I, I very much worried about you during the course of reading this book. Um, I worried that you would slip further the more you discovered about yourself through the mm. genome. Um, I, I'm curious if, if your neuroses deepened as you accessed more information, similar to this dilemma of the, well, here we have all this genomic data, and we can't map it all because there's just a shitload of it. Right. Um, I would say my neuroses had relatively little to do... Well, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. Uh, I would to say, do? I was going to call you on that. <laughs> I would say my genome had relatively little to do with my psychic ups and downs. Yes. Um, and my therapist at one point uh, tried to gently make the case that this whole, the whole book was sort of an exercise in acting out and I don't know. You required a therapist to complete expiation. the book? Uh, I required a therapist, period. Okay. <laughs> Did your genome require a therapist? Um, well, uh, probably everyone's does. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, everyone's doesn't. 
Um, I mean, this is one of the things that being among the first is, you know, you sit down at a computer and you look at an Excel file full of broken genes. Yeah. And you think, you know, I should be dead 50 times over. Yeah. Um, but of course, that's a reflection of how little we know and what a redundant system we are. Well, I'm going to try to make things a little bit more pithy and important with my next question. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, a late moment in the book where you write about sending your spit to 23andMe. Mm -hmm. And uh, it came back with uh, Eschkenzi breast cancer mutations. Uh, as you point out, in dealing with breast cancer, 23andMe was possibly infringing upon another company, Myriad G Myriad Genetic. Genetics mm -hmm. patents. And this makes me ask you, I mean, the Church Lab also has a patent on the Polony sequencing. Polony, uh, yeah. Polony sequencing. Mm -hmm. My apologies, I'm not a geneticist. That's quite um, all so right. I'm going to mispronounce all Most fancy geneticists words. have never I heard of I can do ATCP, that's about it, you know. Um, but is genetic science a rare branch where you have all this patenting of techniques? Uh, I mean, is this more likely to get in the way of a collective understanding of trying to unravel what the genome is, or what, what, what's the deal here? It's a unique position. I would say that it was. Um, some of my colleagues disagree with me uh, that I have what I think maybe they see as kind of a Pollyanna, well, that's probably too strong, sanguine view. Polony to Pollyanna, there you go. <laughs> I'm just not fast enough for you. Oh, no, no. <laughs> um, I think gene patents will die of natural causes because they're going to expire, most of them, by the end of this decade. And infringement is already rampant. Uh, and Myriad had its feet held to the fire yeah. by Judge Sweet last year. And... Um, everything I've heard suggests that uh, they are, I don't know if scared shitless is an overstatement, um, but they see the writing on the wall yeah. that this business model is unsustainable. Um, and clinical data, which had the monopoly on the long QT syndrome genes, which is a rare but important cause of sudden cardiac death, just sold its entire diagnostic business. Um, this was a business that was growing at a curve like this. Um, they lost their monopoly in 2009. Um, but, you know, it could have gone on as a duopoly, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they surprised me with their um, astute, what I think was an astute decision to really run the other way. Yeah. Well, you mentioned business models, and this leads me to also ask you about the selling of the PGP. Church yes. has this struggle going on against the NIH in the sense that, well... Watson was able to basically say, well, give us the money for the Human Genome Project, and we're going to be able to cure cancer. 
Um, of course, nobody had ever done it really before. And the problem with funding now is, is the church says we're in the business of creating and generating hypotheses, not proving them. And the NIH is saying, well, that's all well and dandy, but uh, this isn't necessarily going to get you your grant money. Um, so is it going to fall more upon companies, that, private companies like 23andMe? Yes. Or, yeah? uh, the short answer is yes. Yeah. Um, my sense is that the NIH, the NIH has funded pretty much everything else George Church has wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and rightly so. And so I give them credit for recognizing his genius, his peculiar brand of genius. Um, but there's a natural expiration date for how much they're going to give to him, I suppose. Well, so the NIH in 2004, 2005, whenever the last grant cycle was for the huge genome centers of excellence in genomic science, or SEGS, they funded 10. In this last cycle, they funded one, George's. So despite his um, periodic butting of heads, uh, they didn't take it personally. Yes. Um, and good for them bully for them. I'm glad. Um, but they've declined to fund the PGP. And I think that really just comes down to uh, making the data public. They are not comfortable with it. They have never been comfortable with it. They look in their crystal ball and see all sorts of bad things happening, identity theft and non-paternity and discrimination and they want nothing to do with it and I I, I mean they're the NIH I understand that sort of institutional mindset I don't like it um, but I can't say it's a shock got it well I mean on the other hand if most of the funding for personal genomics comes from private companies, then we get into this kind of retail industry yes. mindset. Right. Can is that even compatible with the progress of science? Or? Well, um, it's a hard question. Um, at the risk of abusing an analogy, I think maybe it's like asking: Is Facebook compatible with the progress of human relationships? Yes. Um, do you know what I mean by yeah, that? Yeah, I do. I do. It's more of a parallel than the actual pith. Um, <laughs> I'm An not overlay, trying to... as it were, that will possibly have some positive connections to the pith. Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, now, I say that as someone who's not on Facebook. I say this as someone who's not on Facebook, too, just to present my prejudices yes. in full transparency for to you and to the to the listenership right yeah. so you know I mean I imagine at some point I'll just cave yeah. and do it uh, but I'll probably be a grumpy bastard yeah. about it yeah yeah I understand you know but uh, it's interesting that you would use Facebook as the retail analogy instead of, say, something like Bloomingdale's, which is what I would use, I suppose, with <laughs> 23andMe and the like. 
Well, okay, I mean, you do, so... Except you actually spit into something, you can't actually spit at Bloomingdale's. Right, so... Although it would be interesting if you would pay $1,000 for the privilege of spitting into Bloomingdale's, but that's... So, the PGP and 23andMe are not in the same business. Yeah. So I think it's very important to distinguish that what George Church is saying is genomic privacy is, one, really hard to do, and two, um, diminishes, impoverishes the data. So it's much easier if we know what Ed Champion looks like and all of his lipid numbers and what he eats for breakfast. You're turning me on with phrases like lipid numbers in relation to me, and I'm a little disturbed by that, but continue, please. Um, well, you know, we can talk about this off air. Uh, so he's saying put it all out there for the greater good if you are willing to abide by these risks, if you're willing to endure these risks. 23andMe, on the other hand, it is in their best interest to keep your data private. That's part of the business model is security, anonymity. Um, you don't share unless you want to share. Yeah. Like Google. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> How did that happen? Yeah. Um, right. Well, I, listen, it is um, it's uncharted territory. Google's obviously made some mistakes. Um, mistakes were made. Yes. And... You know, we're all, to some extent, I think, counting on the don't be evil thing to be true. Yeah. Beyond 23andMe, do you see the don't be evil mentality kind of affecting other private operations? Or is it a general mindset? You mean in um, sort of American commerce in general? Well, just, just specifically or in, in the genetic Commercial retail. genetics. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, well, okay, so, you know, the FDA cracked down last yes. summer. At least they shook a big stick. Um, and I think the companies were really spooked. And... There are very few direct-to-consumer companies left. So Navigenics, you need a doctor. Yeah. Um, Pathway Genomics, you need a doctor. Uh, Council, you need a doctor. Um, and I think they all just came to the conclusion it's not worth the headache uh, let's go conventional medical testing routes and um, so they have basically decided to take institutional cover as opposed to don't be evil is our mission statement cover Duck and cover versus don't be evil. Just to, to, to take a few other mantras in American right. culture. Yeah, okay. I hope I'm not talking in cliches. No, 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 no. It helps to sort of provide a framework for, for someone coming into this, including me. So I, I thank you for, for that. Yeah. Um, let's shift tacks here. Okay. Um, 
both Steven Pinker and James Watson, they chose not to know their APOE status. Right. Um, Watson, uh, as you describe him, said, you know, one wants to kick him under the table or pull him aside and say, dude, stop. Um, the APOE gene, of course, is one of the contributing... The APOE gene, it, it's basically one of the signs that you may have Alzheimer's. But I'm wondering, what do you think accounts for Pinker and Watson's res respective timidity? I mean... These guys are, are quite proud, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, uh, to paraphrase Nietzsche, surely they probably can have the abyss stare back at them. So what's the deal here? Well, um, you know, when I asked Watson about it, he said, uh, I had a relative die of late onset Alzheimer's. When I asked Pinker, he said, I just... You know, it's it's a piece of existential anxiety that I don't need. Yeah. You know, I, I could handle it, but why should I if I don't have to? Well, that's part of the deal, though. You sign up for the project, it's you get the complete picture. Right. Well, so I don't begrudge them yeah. their decisions. Uh, and, you know, I asked George Church about it, and he said... Well, you know, in a way, I wish more of you were um, more skeptical because that would have really tested us yeah. as a project. Um, on the other hand, uh, I'm, I am sympathetic to the argument. In fact, I said this in an email the other day because the PGP brain trust of which I'm on the periphery I'm the sort, sort of, of in-house mailing list exactly all right uh, we were discussing this idea of a preliminary research report where we look at people's genomes and we say here are the red flags and that this somehow implied an opportunity to say I'm out yes I can't do it. You know, like, it's like poker, basically. Okay, I've anteed up. I'm not going to play. Yeah. Texas Hold'em? Well, I was just in at Foxwoods the other day playing three-card poker. Aha, uh aha, -huh, uh -huh. uh, okay. And, you know, you got pair plus. Not quite as hardcore, but, but getting no, up there. but yeah. so much fun. Yeah. Um, we won't talk about my novelty-seeking traits, uh, <laughs> That's okay. You've been quite transparent so far, so we'll leave a I few things so. off the actual yes. microphones. Um, so, um, one of the IT people said, you know, this is a huge pain in the ass for us. Yeah. To have to have gone through the entire exam and consent process and then scrub everything. Yeah. Um, but IT people always complain. It's true. Uh, but I'm actually, I'm sympathetic. You I'm know, sympathetic I, too. So, you know, we were asked, what do you think about sort of abandoning this preliminary report? And just, you know, once you sign the consent, that's it. And I said... I, I really, you know, I think the barrier to get into the project is already pretty damn high. Um, much higher than every other human subject study I've seen. I mean, you know, granted, obviously, if you're in a clinical trial for cancer, you have to have cancer. And 
Um, that's a tragic criterion. But for somebody who's a healthy volunteer to have to go through all of this um, and then say, okay, this is uh, D-Day. Yeah. I said, no. I said, when you're a jet, you're a jet all the way. Did you dance while you said that? I did. I wonder if there's a specific uh, <laughs> gene that would determine whether you danced or not. I contorted into myself yeah. into helical. Contorted into according, the B form. According to social academic norms. Okay. I want to get back to what I was suggesting earlier about the sheer amount of information by quoting from The Book of Me, which is Richard Powers' essay, GQ, I believe 2009, yeah. where he sequenced his genome. Uh, he wrote, if a standard 250-page book comprises about 500,000 letters, you would need 12,000 such books to publish an individual genome. Laid out in a line the diameter of a penny, the base pairs of the genome would circle the Earth about three times. If the genome were a tune played at a nice, bright, allegro tempo of 120 beats per minute, it would take just short of a century to play. Now, you're a little bit more pithy about this dilemma by suggesting the phrase, drinking from a fire hose. Um, genetic data is, by just about every stretch of the imagination, a bit on the prodigious side, yes. to say the least. Um, I, I'm wondering, given the difficulties of interpreting this information, what is your response to someone who might declare the impending information useless? Um, is the naysayer to basically sit out the game until the technology arrives, or until the costs go down? I mean, we've seen it go down to about $10,000. Right. So, yes. you know, what what of this dilemma? I mean, it's it, do we have to wait for, like, the, you know, multiple terabyte drives to come in for each individual gen genome? I mean, right. It, it's an excellent question, and it's one the field has struggled with um, basically since George Church opened his mouth. Yes. Um, and we'll continue to struggle with until we're at the zero dollar genome or close to it. Until we're at the bargain basement level. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my feeling is I always preface everything I say with, you know, I'm, I'm not an evangelist. This is not, I mean, the PGP making it public obviously is not for everybody. Um, but 23andMe is not for everybody. And, um, you know, you talked about how reflective I was in the book. Well, I, I think that's what getting involved with this stuff requires. Yeah. Is you have to look in the mirror and decide what kind of person you are. Um, and obviously, as I detail in the book, I'm kind of an anxious person. And so you would think, a priori, I'm an unlikely candidate for this, but my curiosity sort of outweighed my reticence. Yeah. Um, now, to your question, so, so the two criticisms, the main criticisms of personal genomics from the medical, the biomedical industrial complex are one, the information is useless, and two, the information is dangerous. So I think the useless critique carries more force. 
Uh, really? More than the dangerous critique? Yes. It Why? carries more truck yeah. with me, anyway. Because, um, as you say, the data are prodigious. The bottleneck is in interpretation. So aggregating the data, amassing the data, is a trivial technical exercise at this point. If you've got five or 10,000 bucks. Yeah. Um, and so then you have this hard drive full of however many terabytes um, or even just gigabytes if you have, say, a consensus genome. And there are just now in garages across the country startup companies that are saying, okay, bring us your tired, your prodigious genomes and let us interpret them. Um, but it is a very crude science. Yes. So what that means is the overwhelming majority of the information is not useful at this point. And what is most useful are things like APOE, um, carrier status for single gene disorders like cystic fibrosis, muscular dystrophy, which are rare but clinically important and understood at least in terms of how they're inherited um, and can be diagnosed at the molecular level. Um, and then you have these more cutting edge, I hate to say that. Um, then don't. Okay, I retract that, Your Honor. Um, so drug response. Drug response, every time I go to a bookstore, we'll see if this, if this happens on Monday night. Um, I get in a conversation during the Q&A about warfarin, the most commonly prescribed blood thinner. Uh, I think there's something like 36 million prescriptions in this country. Something like 40 to 50% of the variation in response to this drug is determined by two or three genes. Yes. We've known that there's a relationship between heredity and response to warfarin for 45, 46 years. We have still not reached a consensus as to whether testing people's genes, people who need blood thinners, to see which variants they carry is a good idea. Is it cost effective? Does it lead to better outcomes? But with 23andMe, which until December 31st was charging $99, um, if you already have your genotypes for warfarin response, then the cost-effective argument is settled because you already have the information. So Navigenics does this too. I have a card in my wallet 
that has my genotypes at those genes on it, should I ever need an anticoagulant, I hand that to the doctor and I say, go to warfarindosing.org, which is sponsored by NIH, by the way, punch these numbers in, enter my vital signs, and it will spit out a dose. Yeah. That's a useful thing. And it's especially useful because warfarin began life as rat poison. Yeah. It is a tricky customer. Um, if you give too much, people bleed to death. If you don't give enough, their blood stays clotted. Yeah. I'm with you on that. But to go ahead and bring up Spider-Man into this, with great power comes great responsibility. I mean, I have... I thought you were going to bring up the musical. Well, we will see if somebody dies in the coming week. <laughs> um, but anyway, I wanted to bring up Kirk Maxey. Yes. Who, this was an, an astonishing story in the book. He yes. was a rather prodigious sperm donor during the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, he signed a release form. Uh, didn't quite know what he signed on to, but his sperm became a chief source for fertility clinics. By his own calculation, he had fathered hundreds of kids. And in fact, a technician who had a crush on him basically said, Hey, baby, I've impregnated myself with your sperm. Yeah. Uh, and we, you weren't able to find out if she was fired or if, there was, if she did in fact have the kid. But uh, this was extremely creepy to me. And while, yes, I agree with you that having access to more knowledge will certainly be beneficial in the health world when you account for just sheer irresponsibility like this poor guy and, and the fact that the technician knocked yourself up on his sperm I mean you are I, I suspect uh, underestimating the capacities for humans to be evil uh, to sort of counter the the Google idealism well I think it's a fair point yeah um that said, not two days ago, I got an email from a guy saying, um, I read your, no, I didn't, he, he hadn't read the book. I guess he heard me on the radio or something. Yeah. And he said, um, my quote unquote father told me recently that I was conceived through a sperm donor. And I would really like to know um, what sort of genome I inherited uh, from my biological father. Um, can you help me? And I said, you should get in touch with the donor sibling registry. Um, and you will meet thousands of people like you. Yeah. Uh, and none so, of them know who their parents are. <laughs> well, but they've started to yeah. find them. Yeah. And um, I lost my train of thought. Uh, so so the, one of the arguments that physicians like to make is, well, listen, family history is so much more useful and predictive than all of this genetic stuff. What if you're adopted? What if you were conceived via sperm donor? You know, what if you were orphaned? Um, you know, what if you had a falling out with your parents? Yeah. Uh, so, 
for those people, genomic information could be tremendously useful. And, and the, uh, my other response to that is, well, why are these things mutually exclusive? Uh, just because I have access to my family history information, if I want to send 23andMe 200 bucks, you know, what business is that of yours? Sex time on the subject of the norms and the abnorms right. of athletes' dongs. We, we, unfortunately, <laughs> the batteries went out, but now we're back. Um, there is no absolute master aspect of privacy. So, so anyway, yes. going back to the issue of like how we contend right. with this in light of the fact that human beings can be just as irresponsible as they are responsible. Yes, absolutely. So, again, I... I I always lead by saying, if you are concerned about these sorts of risks, and certainly the PGP goes to great lengths to make people understand that any sort of wacky science fiction scenario you can dream up is theoretically possible, even if it isn't. Uh, so. You know, I went to the exhibit on insulin at the New York Historical Society a couple days ago. And um, Elliot Joslin, who was the great sort of translator of Banting's discovery of insulin, was such a visionary. He was so ahead of his time. He understood that we can't do this. This is up to diabetics to keep track of their own glucose and their own insulin and their own responses and diet and symptoms. And he said, you know, teaching is cheaper than nursing. Yeah. And so this brings me to one of my other soapboxes, which is... Um, I'm not saying that having one's genome analyzed is um, going to yield immediate public health benefits. But what I would say is understanding the science at some primitive level is going to be good for society. And I see personal genomics as an avenue for that. Yeah. And what the critics of 23andMe, and I'm critical of some of the things they do, and we can talk about that, but one of the things they do really well is educate. Their YouTube videos are much better than anything I ever got in high school, genetics, and arguably college genetics. Um, so, you know, we, we don't understand necessarily the details of cell phone towers or space travel, but we are engaged with those things at some level. But I'm wondering if... And I agree with you. I do think that 
genetics, particularly as things advance, really do need to be taught in the classroom. Right. But you're also, the, the likelihood of that happening is also the likelihood of actually getting a very serious economics class educating the public as to how derivatives and subprimes and and how how the system works that is that is in the process of screwing a colossal chunk of the population. I mean, you're about as likely to get that in as well as genetics. I mean, education, as you point out, is coming from a YouTube video. Right. It's coming not from a face-to-face contact or, or I mean, uh, I guess the question is, is, is whether that education is translatable in any national way. And it would seem to me that it would have to be in order to get right. people understanding this great responsibility. Well... Um, another thing I like to say is that genetics is not particle physics. Yeah. Um, you don't have to uh, immerse yourself in Mendel's ratios yeah. to sort of grasp the basics. Um, and one of the attractions of personal genomics is... It has direct bearing and relevance, and so your own family is instructive uh, in one way or another. Yeah. Um, so your point about understanding the complexities of finance is, yes, it's valid, and it's no, there's no question it's an uphill battle. Yeah. Um, but... Um, however hard it is, it seems to me infinitely preferable to willful ignorance. Yeah. Even if a few people suspicious of genetics, the people who can't look at themselves in the mirror, refuse to sign off on having their genome exposed, even though, you know, the PGP-10 faced a diversity problem. They got James Shirley in. Right. Um, But even so... The question of whether the PGP-10 reflects a complete diversity, like, say, having someone from a low-income bracket or the like. Absolutely. You know, the, the criticisms we mentioned right. before about Skip Gates, well, what if someone uses this as, as a way of uh, perpetuating some idea about yes. the underclass? Right. You know, racial things, things like that. That's when you get into dangerous territory. I mean, if you don't have... I mean, what is the central authority for something like this? The... Not, right. the, not, not so, for the government. But. So this is where I am critical of 23andMe. I understand it's a, it's a for-profit company. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you can't get funding from Google forever, and you've got venture capitalists you need to make good on. And, and so this is why you go to... Davos and um, Soho and Rupert Murdoch's house. Uh, But I think if you really want to change the culture and make this viable and overcome these things that we're talking about, then there should be a head start program for genetics. And a genetic great society program or well, listen, I don't want to be too highfalutin about it. Um, but, you know, go to the inner city, go to the public schools. You know, I go to my daughter's elementary school every year 
And once a year. <laughs> well, I try to do it twice a year. Um, and you know, I bring um, salt and dish soap and rubbing alcohol, and they salt out their own DNA. And you know, I, God knows, I'm probably breaking some rule. You know what? This is a this is something wait, I wait wait what rule are you breaking? Well, well, okay. So I went to an education yeah. workshop yeah. at the American Society of Human Genetics, and there was a presentation. Um, so they had teamed up, sort of academic geneticists with public school teachers. Wonderful. So this team is giving a presentation and saying, "Well, okay, so here's our lab that we do with the." sixth graders or whatever and we have them salt DNA out of a strawberry yes and I raised my hand and I said why a strawberry why not a human why not them and the general response was just like that meaning that's a more aggressive peanuts teacher thing exactly right Uh, meaning the principles won't go for it. Um, it's probably, I mean, I don't know, maybe it was just self-censorship. Um, but this is the kind of intrinsic, embedded fear of genetics that I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, and so if it is integrated early, I would like to think that we can sort of change. I'm trying to avoid using the word paradigm. Yeah. (laughs) Brother, can you paradigm? Sounds like a plan. Um, What you're talking about is we're early enough to implement some kind of curriculum. Yes. Something that could possibly be implemented on the national level. Um, Something that actually could avoid some of the idealistic mistakes that came with multiculturalism. Something along mm-hmm. those lines. Mm-hmm. You're, you're saying, you're basically saying something along those lines? Or? Well, okay, so if you look at what happened with Berkeley yeah. this past summer, um, the guy who came up with the idea, Jasper Rhine, who I should say, I you know, I met him maybe once, but but I love him and I love what he stands for. Um, had this very, what I think was this ingenuous and obviously naive idea of instead of having all the freshmen read the same book, let's genotype them all at a few markers. And the response was so strident and you know first it became uh, well you got to provide education and counseling and you've got to let people opt out and what are you going to do about security and privacy and one of these genetic markers has to do with alcohol metabolism and it's going to 
provoke irresponsible behavior amongst students who don't have that marker. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I suppose I'm willing to have those discussions. Um, but then it got to the point where they introduced this bill in the California legislature saying you cannot do genetic testing in the California state university system. You can't use taxpayer money for this. And so it's this constant sort of moving of the goalposts that makes me crazy. Um, Now, I think some good came out of those discussions and I think a similar program has been instituted in Stan- at Stanford amongst the medical students. Um, but clearly, uh, the response to me reflects, it was sort of a microcosm of where we are and how problematic the whole subject still is and what a taboo it remains. But it's not just it being a taboo, it's also the glacial pace of legislation that is out of step with the rather remarkable pace of scientific progress. Uh, I'm wondering if, uh, if this might pose a, a greater problem towards any kind of uh, educational process that we're, we're proposing here. Uh, that because non-scientists, laymen who are politicians, are going to have a completely whacked out view of where genomics is at right you know this is going to really impede progress and also impede efforts whether they come from government funding or whether they come from private companies to actually go ahead and and and, and push things forward well this is part of the uphill battle yeah this is why george church has been stonewalled by nih and this is why it takes people like him to stick their necks out. Yeah. Um, but it's not going to be easy. I have no illusions about that. Well, on, the, on a note of potential genomic progress, Misha, thanks so much. It was a pleasure to chat with you. <laughs> I was broad, but I was kind. And sometimes I get nervous when I see an open door. Close your eyes.